0: On today's episode, we talk with co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, Jack Canfield. This is The Soulfully Optimized Life with Adam Sadiq. uh, Before we just jump into all the questions, uh, Jack, would you please briefly share the story behind creating the Chicken Soup for the Soul series?
1: Sure, what happened is that um I was a high school teacher way back when in Chicago in an all black inner city high school, and I quickly learned that my students mostly paid attention when I was telling a story rather than just teaching some intellectual concept so I started and I also noticed they weren't very motivated, so I started collecting stories of successful African Americans who would motivate them you know to believe that it was possible for them to get out of the ghetto and have a successful life and then I started training teachers, and I just kept using stories to illustrate the points that I wanted to teach. I was teaching self-esteem. And then eventually I moved over into doing a lot of public seminars and corporate trainings as well, and I just always was telling stories. And there was this period of about, I don't know, about a month where almost every talk I gave, someone would come up and say, "That story about the puppy you told us, story about the Girl Scout who sold all the Girl Scout cookies, then that the book anywhere? And my daughter needs to read it. My son needs to read it. My sales team needs to read it. I say, no, it's not. And so after about a month, I was coming home on a plane from Boston to L.A. where I was living at the time. And I just went, I think there's someone knocking on my head going, put these stories in a book. So I made a list of all the stories I knew. There were about 70 stories. And um so that's how it kind of came into being. And then I made a commitment that I would write two stories a week. So every two and a half days, I would complete a story my wife would go to bed around 10 i would go to bed around midnight and i would write and that's how the first book came into being and then what happened also is right toward the end of that when i had about 70 stories i went to a a holistic health conference where i was a speaker and one of the other speakers was mark victor Hansen, the co-author of the the series and he said you want to have lunch and i said sure and we started talking and, and Basically, you know, what are you up to? And I said, I'm doing this book. And, um, he said, I want to do it with you. And I said, Well, that's coming in a little late, you know. <laughs> but, you know, he said, You have to have 101 stories. It's a spiritual number in India. He had been a student ambassador way back when in the 60s, I think, to India. And I said, Okay, if you can find 31 stories, well, I'll let you do it because he's a really good marketer and sales guy. And so I, so he did. And we ended up with about 140 stories, which we then, um, had too many, so we we tripped onto something that became really the lifeblood of the success of the series, which was we asked about 15 people to read all 140 stories and grade them on a scale of one to ten, ten being high, goosebumps, made me cry, beautiful story, you know, mm-hmm. five being are you kidding me? And so we then took all those stories. And I remember with a calculator, I had this huge sheet, like you know, those old computer sheets that used to be really wide, you know, about three pages of those. And I took a ruler and I put all the stories down, the names, and I averaged all the scores. And Only the top scores went in the book. Later, you know, Excel spreadsheets were developed and we continued to use teams of, you know, about 40 people, the kid pretty scientific toward the end of like, you know, black, white, urban, rural, Hispanic, you know, Native American, highly educated Not so educated, uh, different age groups, Christian, Buddhist, you know, uh, Jewish, etc. And basically, the stories that scored the highest meant they had universal appeal across all, you know, conservatives, liberals, etc. So that's, I think, one of the great secrets of the successes, the book's successes. And then we took the book to New York. We were rejected by 21 publishers over three days. We had seven meetings a day and our agent gave us the book back so Mark and I took the book to, But well, we sent it out and got a lot of rejections again, everyone said the title was stupid, people don't read collections of short stories, which was true up until then because they were literary short stories and um, they, they weren't quite so, you know, moving emotionally and, and I, I know one of your questions was um, you know, how did we come up with a title because yeah. we didn't have a title we had to go to New York to sell this book we had a no title And so Mark and I are both meditators and we agreed that we would meditate for a week each, you know, for an hour a day, each of us, and just ask for a title, and see what came. And it was on Wednesday, third day, I saw this green chalkboard appear and his hand came out and wrote chicken soup on it. And I remember saying to the hand, what the heck does chicken soup have to do with this book? And the hand said, I mean, the voice of the hand, which I assume was God, but who knows, um, said, uh, um... When you were sick as a child, your grandmother would give you chicken soup. And I said, but this is not a book about sick people. And the uh, voice said, well, people's spirits are sick. This was 1993, first Gulf War, a recession, not unlike the one we just came out of. And, um, there was a lot of resignation, hopelessness, and fear in the culture. And so I thought, chicken soup for the spirit, and, uh, chicken soup for the soul. And then I got goosebumps. And, Mark got goosebumps, and wife got goosebumps, or Asian got goosebumps. No one in New York got goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) You know, eventually uh, we went to this ABA, American Booksellers Association. We went booth to booth to booth for uh, two or three days, and on the final day, this one little publisher in Florida said, "We'll read the manuscript. Some people wouldn't even take it." And um, they read it, they loved it, and they said they'd publish it. And we said, "How many books do you think you'll sell?" They said, oh, 20,000 if you're lucky. And we said, well, we want to sell a million and a half in a year and a half. And he laughed. And a year and a half later, we'd sold 1.3 million copies. So, wow. Um, that's kind of the beginning story of, and it, you know, the book did not hit a bestseller list until about 14 months into it, maybe 12 months, something like that. And, um, basically it just over a few weeks, it rose right up
0: to number one in the New York Times list and
1: stayed there for three years
0: wow that's that's incredible, yeah, and it's gone on now the, the whole series has what five hundred million books in print.
1: That's what I'm told, yeah, and okay. um something like forty seven languages
0: Wow, that's incredible so yeah. did, from- from the beginning, did you anticipate that it'd be such a huge global phenomenon?
1: No, uh, we were very dedicated and committed to making it a bestseller. We asked a lot of people who were best selling authors like. Kim Blanchard who wrote The One Minute Manager, John Gray who wrote, written Men Are From Mars, people like that, um, and also Scott Peck who has the longest running book on the New York Times, I think it was 12 years on the New York Times list, and we we called them up and we said, you know, what advice would you give us? And they all gave us good advice, I think Scott Peck's was the best, he said, do an interview every day for three years, and uh, do five a day the first year, year—minimum, you know, three to five, so we did that, and um, we also bought a book called A uh, Thousand and One Ways to Market Your Book by John Kramer, K R E M E R, And uh, I think maybe 900 of those, 1,000, applied to us, and we made Post-its. We had our staff make Post-its for two days. We just put them up on this big, huge wall. We had this hallway. And every day we'd take off a Post-it or two or three and do what it said called every PX to every military base and asked if they were carrying the books. They said, no, could we send you one? We uh, called pretty much every newspaper. Will you review it if we send it to you? We called all the churches in Southern California can we come give a talk at your church and sell books at the end. And I mean, we just did nonstop what we call the Rule of Five, five actions a day for pretty much two years. Well, wow. until it hit the bestseller list. And then, I remember we did a... a God, like a two or three month book tour, you know, just constantly speaking at churches, civics groups. know, um, I always tell people a book is like, a, there's a feminine and a masculine part of being an author. The feminine part is the more introverted part where you're birthing the book. The Masculine part is where you have to go out of the world and promote it. And, um, you know, most writers would rather write than promote. Yeah. And most promoters aren't really good writers. <laughs> you <Yeah>. get this, <laughs> So real problem out there. But, you know, we just did it. And
0: um we were committed to
1: it. We really felt we had a message that was valuable. But we no, we did not see the worldwide phenomenon coming. Um what was fortunate and you know, whether it was um you know, fate or good luck or whatever, but you know, they print books in folios where they print like maybe sixteen pages on one page, then they're all folded up and cut. And often your book doesn't come out to even 16 pages. It might be three blank pages in the back. And so our publisher called, so we've got some blank pages in the back. Do you want to add anything? And I just wrote more chicken soup, comma. And I said, if you have a story, send it in. Maybe we'll do a sequel. And um, we started getting, there was one point we we're getting 500 stories a day. Wow. Where, and they weren't all good. Not everyone can write, as you know, but, um, <laughs> you know, we sifted through them. and And I think the first, couple of sequels came from that and then we got more strategic like when we started doing themed books like chicken soup for the women's soul we reached out to women women writers we knew we reached out to like baseball writers for chicken soup for the baseball lover's soul um people that were writing in the field of you know aging for chicken soup for the golden
0: soul that, that kind of thing
1: mm-hmm. wow
0: it's incredible i'm curious of, of all the stories um that you've read in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Are there any, um, any few or any one that's really stuck with you the most throughout all these years?
1: Well, I tell a lot of them in my talks, uh, because a lot of them were t- stories I was using in my talks to begin with in the first mm-hmm. couple of books. Um, but I think, you know, from the point of view of writing, there's a great story, uh, about a woman named Catherine with a C, Catherine Lonigan. And, um, pretty sure you can check it online. She's the author of 27 books. And um, but she was a very gifted writer in high school, and then um, got a scholarship to some college in Ohio—I forget which one—a liberal arts school. And she got into an advanced writing course, and it was a visiting professor from Harvard. And she got her first paper back, and it said that it was a C, and um, she was you know shocked. And it was an F. It said F. See me after class. She was shocked. And so she went to the professor and said, why do you get an F? And he said, because you can't write. And she said, well, I'm a journalism major and I'm on scholarship. If I get a fail, I'll I'll lose my scholarship. And he said, well, I'd hate to see you do that. You're a nice kid. I'll I'll make you a deal. I'll give you a passing grade, like a C, if you promise to change your major. So she changed her major to sociology. And other than writing papers for school, she never wrote again for 17 years. And she was living down in Texas in a very small town. And there was a murder in a nearby town, and she was over there at like the Costco or, you know, Walmart, and um she went into a restaurant, and there were all these journalists that she recognized from television who were covering this murder, and so she walked up to their table and said, uh, just wanted to honor you guys, and say, I really appreciate journalists because I wanted to be one, and never did. And they said, well, that's BS, if you'd wanted to write, you would have written. And she said, no, no, I was told on good authority, I can't write. And so this one guy said, well, I don't believe that. He said, "Whose authority is that? So he was a Harvard professor. He said, oh, my God, professors, what do they know? Um, you know, I, I write for a living. I've written screenplays, novels, you know, nonfiction, works of research. i am tell you what. Write something, send it to me. I'll tell you if it's any good. So she spent a year, and she wrote her first book. And she sent it to him. And um, he liked it. So he sent the manuscript to his age in New York. That was a woman. She called... Catherine and said, My I love this story, it's incredible. Um, may I represent you? So our first book got published, it was called Romancing the Stone, which later became a movie. Second book was uh, Jewel of the Nile, which became a movie with you know uh Kathleen Turner and um guys can't remember his name right now. Um uh, and Michael Douglas. And oh. um and so a big hit and she made, you know, millions of dollars. Now she's written twenty seven novels since that day in that restaurant. And the point of the story is don't take anyone else's opinion to tell you what you can and can't do because it's just one person's opinion. And that story to me as a writer is very inspiring because I see so many people give up their dreams um, and not go for them. Um, There's another story I love called Puppies for Sale where this little boy is walking through a mall and he sees a, a sign that says Puppies for Sale. And it's a retail store, not a pet store. So he goes in and he asks the owner. He says, I see you have puppies for sale. Can you show me some of them? He says, sure. So he whistles. and Out comes this big dog named Lady, followed by five teeny tiny balls of fur and little puppies. And he knows one of the puppies is limping. He says, how much are you charging for the puppies? The guy says, well, I know $20, $50, depends on the dog. He says, uh, how much for the one that's limping? He says, oh, you don't want to buy that one, son. He's got a bad hip socket. He'd never be able to walk and jump and play like the other puppy. So, if you want him, I'll give him to you for free. He said, uh, "I don't think you really want him." The boy said, "No, I really want him, and I don't. I think he's worth twenty dollars. So, I'll, I'll, can I pay you fifty cents down and the rest over the course of you know a couple months?" And the guy says, um, "Yeah, I'll do that." He so said, "But he's never going to be able to run and jump with you. Why would you want that dog?" Because after the little boy reached out and he pulled up his left pant leg and he had a big metal brace on his leg. And he said, well, you see, mister, I don't run and jump so well myself. And I think the dog's going to need someone who understands. And I just love that story because it, it just tugs at the heart that basically yeah. says, you know, hey, let's be compassionate.
0: Incredible. What, what does soul mean to you, Jack?
1: Well... I believe that that we are a, a being that incarnates into a body and what do you call that consciousness your soul your true essence um, they're that part of us that exists before we're born and after we're born and so it it seems to contain in it the higher qualities of love compassion courage perseverance patience uh those kind of things unconditional love and so for me Chicken soup for the soul it really is about chicken soup for our highest, um, being, for our highest, uh, self. And so, um, that's kind of how I hold it. And I, I believe our souls, uh, come into being with a purpose. I think we all are born with a purpose. Some people are meant to be musicians, some people mechanics, some people are meant to solve, you know, mathematical and engineering problems. And that if we, Truly acknowledge our own interests and our talents and our, um, our, you know, desires and those things that we're drawn to, that we're naturally drawn to that which is the, going to lead to the full expression of our soul's purpose. So that's how I hold it.
0: Beautiful. Uh, on, an, on an interview with Oprah, I think it was on Super Soul Sunday, I heard you mention, um, your, your definition of success as fulfilling your soul's mission. Um, mm-hmm. How can one recognize what their soul's mission is, and especially for you know, a lot of the uh, younger generation today uh really feeling lost in what they want to do with their life and trying to find their sure. mission, what would you recommend for them?
1: Well, what I said was fulfilling your soul's purpose, but your mission flows from your purpose. So, you know, my purpose is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy. So I inspire with stories like "Chickens Over the Soul." I empower with seminars I do, like on my success principles and my book, "The Success Principles," and so forth, to live their highest vision, whatever that is. Someone may want to end hunger in Santa Barbara County. Someone else may want to write a piece of music, um, you know, as good as Beethoven, and someone else might want to, you know, put people in really beautiful homes, and whether they're an architect, a contractor, or a real estate agent, and so that. Basically, if you follow your joy, you know, the the way to discover your purpose, there's several ways. I teach a guided visualization in my longer workshops where people go up a mountain, they go into a temple, a guardian angel comes down, hands them a golden box, and then there's a symbol that represents their purpose. And now that's about a 20 minute exercise with a lot of relaxation and music and stuff that allows you to go really deep into your subconscious mind. in my book, the success principles, the second chapter is called "Be Clear Why You're Here." There's a paper and pencil test, or not test, but you know, exercise where you um, ask yourself, "What are two qualities that I really love expressing that would, most of my friends would say that's me?" Like my wife is spontaneity and authenticity. Me, it's love and joy. Someone else, it might be discipline and focus. And, and uh, that's when you get your martial artist, your ninja type guy, you know, whatever. And so. What happens is then we ask the next question, which is what are two ways you most love expressing those qualities? And it might be acting, singing, mediating, leading, managing, writing, dancing, you know, whatever. And then if you were to describe the world as perfect, according to you, what would be happening in that world? In my world, everyone's living their highest vision. In my wife's world, everyone's being exactly who they are with no, no artifice, no... Uh, you know, trying to be what they're not. For someone else, it might be everyone's living an ecological, sustainable lifestyle. For someone else, it might be engaging in social justice. So when you put all that together, it's taking the two qualities that you love to express in a certain way to help bring about the world that you just described. And so that's another way to get in touch with them. The last way is real simple. It's just to look at when have you experienced the most joy in your life? One of my students, when she was in college at Ohio State, um, she was supposed to be a doctor, a, a veterinarian, because she loved the animals. And basically, she loved playing with the animals, more than she loved medicine. And She realized that after two years of anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry. Yeah. And so she went inside and said, you know, when was I happiest? and it was always when she was in leadership you know being a, a, a student council leader president of her class uh sorority leader at, at the school etc and so she decided what she wanted to do was change her major to leadership which there wasn't any such thing at the time but she convinced the university to let her put together a series of courses in psychology and persuasion and journalism and speech and so forth and she graduated with a leadership degree And at 26 she was teaching leadership at the pentagon now she has a leadership foundation that she leads for young women uh, wow. very very successful married to a west point graduate who's a, a leader and runs leadership trainings for corporations so basically if you look at when what i, I believe that joy is your feedback mechanism that tells you you're on purpose or not so if you're experiencing joy you're doing those things that are helping you fulfill your purpose. If you're, that doesn't mean every moment you're in ecstatic bliss. You know, there are times when I'm driving to a gig or putting my slides together for a talk mm-hmm. that I'm not as happy as I am when I'm on stage. But I know I need to do that to be on stage. Mm-hmm. So basically, 85% of my life I'm happy all the time. You know, and um, the rest is just doing things you got to do, like changing diapers and so forth. But I think <laughs> those are nice ways. You know, I know. But those are what, and sometimes people love changing diapers. I'm not one of them. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get the, um, mom with 16 kids or the nurse in the pediatric ward. But, uh, but just follow your joy. You know, we've heard that phrase a lot of follow your bliss kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Joseph Campbell, right?
1: Yeah. And I think too, you know, for younger people, I have a chapter in my success principles book called Just Lean into It. Sometimes you need to try things out. You know, I I taught high school for a couple of years. I worked in a general electric plant one summer. I was a a water and, you know, fun instructor at a camp and taught kids swimming. And I was, you know, a number of different jobs before I landed into what I really love to do. I mean, I went to college to become a lawyer, which I'm really glad I didn't. And I took an elective class my senior year in psychology, and I didn't even know much about it. And that's when I fell in love with it. So. Um, my my degrees in Chinese history, if you can believe it. Oh wow, that's yeah, yeah.
0: that's incredible. I yeah, I, I I sense you know the very um uh it, to me it's very transparent that you you know uh, from the beginning of me reading Chicken Soup stories and everything um, that I know about you have such a profound wisdom. So mm. that makes sense Thank to you. me with the Chinese history. Um, the uh I just have two last questions here. Sure. Um, first of all, I'm just curious. So what what's been your latest focus these days and how can people find out about that?
1: Well basically my I have two focuses
0: at the moment. I'm I'm writing
1: two books, finishing up one called Living the Success Principles, where I've interviewed or just asked people to write stories about seventy people who've studied my work, the success principles and the secret and so you know, different things I've been involved with. And um I wrote a book called The Aladdin Factor, How to Ask For and Get In Your Want in Life. And I love that. So they're all stories of people applying those principles to their life and the miracles that have happened as a result of it. Wow. Um pretty it's a really cool book. And then I'm writing I'm just starting to write a book called uh Choose Love Not Fear. Mm-hmm. And um basically I think the every decision comes down to am I gonna choose a course of action or a, you know, every choice that's based on love love of others love of myself love of the planet love of you know all living beings kind of of thing or am i choosing out of fear fear of missing out fear of loss fear of um the north koreans you know fear of iran and nuclear stuff i mean we can see right now you know we're 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 in a political situation that's really dominated by fear and so it, it just make worse decisions you know than you make when you're coming from love and and Compassionate and caring and then the last thing is we've now been focusing on you know, my writing slow because I'm spending 80% of my time doing training so I'm training trainers uh, mostly where I'm training people to teach the work that I've developed over the last 30 years uh, on success and how to be more successful and we define success again as fulfilling your soul's purpose so it's not just monetary success but success in relationships success in your community, success in your health, success in terms of, you know, fun and recreation in your life. How do you have a balanced, fulfilled, meaningful life uh, that doesn't harm others, that doesn't harm the environment? And, it, you know, ultimately, when you serve yourself fully that way, when you're in touch with your purpose and your inner guidance, then you automatically are of service to those people around you. Um, so that's what I'm doing. We've now got a live training program, and we have an online training program. The online training program trained over 2,000 people in 91 countries, who are now teaching this in their schools and workshops and businesses um, and churches and so forth. And then we have 500 graduates that are live, 100 of the last five years, 100 each year, that are doing that. So I mean, literally, after the earthquake in Nepal, I had people going into villages that were decimated, just like we see now down in Saint Thomas and. In Puerto Rico and Florida and Houston and so forth, uh teaching the success principles, so giving people hope and strategies and a system for rebuilding
0: rather than going into
1: despair and resignation and fear
0: extraordinary well wow. uh, just my final question here I mean' mm-hmm. it's, what what you've been able to do as an author is is definitely nothing short of. Phenomenal! I mean, absolutely extraordinary. Um, and I'm just curious, what what advice would you give first time authors who are you know deeply inspired by you? Um, they're just going at it. You know, they've maybe they've just written their novel or nonfiction book, and mm-hmm. um, they really want to help spread this message. What would you recommend they they do? Be it their mindset or their strategy, anything. Everything well
1: it's a combination. Everything is a, con- a combination of mindset and skill set and, and, and action. And so um, you have to have your mind on straight. You have to believe, you, have, you know, you have to believe it's possible to achieve whatever your goal is. Your goal may be, may, may, be, may be that you want to transform parenting in America. It might be that you want to uh, educate educators to be more humane. It might be that you want to entertain people with your humorous, you know, autobiography. Um, you know my wife 's writing an episodic memoir, and she 's not a writer i mean she's 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 she's, she's every day she 's in like you know i don't think I can do this and um but she 's doing it and and her her commitment is to make a difference in the empowerment of women to you know her father committed suicide when she was eight. Um, you know, she lived in the shadow of her mother, who was a famous actress in Southern California. She lived in the shadow of her first husband, who was the best skier on Mammoth Mountain. Then she marries me, you know, so it's it's tough. And so she's like, you know, stepping out of the shadows into the sunlight. And um, so, you know, you've got to be willing to trust that your book is going to make a difference. And and I say that in the sense that maybe you're only going to reach twenty thousand people. Um uh, you're not gonna be a New York Times bestseller. But if you change the lives of twenty thousand people or uplift twenty thousand people, uh, or maybe you change twenty thousand doctors in the way they look at medicine, and that then changes all of you know the, their patients and how they get medical care, uh that's a huge thing. Now, I developed a course called Bestseller Blueprint. People can go online and find that um it's an online course where we teach people how to be best sellers and um, we've interviewed tim ferris and marcy Scheimoff and john gray and myself and lots of best-selling authors and and also gives people like how to write the book so it has hooks you know if you write a non-fiction book your chapter titles need to be hooks that are going to hook the media that go oh we want to interview you about that so there's a lot to know about how you write the book so it has you know um p r value when you start promoting it but the the basic thing is write a good book uh people often put a book up too fast that's why I go back to what I said earlier. you know we had you know forty people read our book, unfortunately, most books before they're sold are read by the author and their spouse and then an then a acquisition editor at the at the publishing house and um that's it there's not a lot of feedback about what's clear, what's not clear what's useful what's not useful. I always tell people, if you're writing a novel, one of my favorite quotes is by a guy named Bryce Courtney. He used to teach at the My Writers Conference, which I used to speak at every year for eight years. He said, a novel should always have a bucket of tears and a barrel of laughs, so you've got to move people. Um, And, you know, so so learn to write, you know, study writing. Uh, my, My wife's read like 10 books on how to write better and how to do dialogue and how to write a... Sexy and, you know, all those kind of stuff. So it works. And I think, you know, make a study of it. And then make a study of marketing and PR. I mentioned John Kramer's book, A Thousand Wrong Ways to Market Your Book for Authors and Publishers. That's a great thing. You know, don't think it'll just sell itself. That's a big mistake, especially in today's world. There's so much noise on the Internet. There's so much noise in print. Um, you know, I think I've read something like, 600,000 books a year published or something, either 60 or 600, and maybe 60 make the New York Times list, you know, in in terms of like the top 15, you've got 60 Mm -hmm. books on the list at any given point on, you know, nonfiction, fiction, hardback, and and, um, paperback, and Mm -hmm. um, the reality is some of those books stay there for a long time, like Tim Ferriss' 4-Hour Workweek, or Dr. you know, Seuss, uh, all the places you'll go when graduation comes around. So there's not a lot of spaces on those lists. Now, you can become an Amazon bestseller, um, you know, for a day in a category if you understand what's called the Amazon strategy. How do you get a lot of people to buy your book on the same day? So it punches it up. We teach that stuff in the bestseller blueprint. But I think, you know, I studied sales. I studied marketing. I asked people, how did you sell your book? You know, that's how we learned about to do radio and TV. Do blogs, do video blogs, you know, put stuff online, uh, make friends, get them to post for you. Um, and I think today, you know, a lot of people do bookstore uh, signings and they're hard. You know, you get 20 or 30 people. If you can do a virtual book signing online, you can get, you know, a thousand people to show up if you know what you're doing, you know, in terms of search engine optimization and internet marketing and all that. So that's all worth studying But again, write a really good book, get good feedback, come up with a good title, make sure it has a good cover, because we know now that when people walk into a store, like the front of Barnes & Noble, you're skimming, and you might have less than a second for a book cover to jump out at you. There's research like black, white, and yellow, and red jump out at you more than other things. If you're spying, the the title's too small, people can't read it, Uh, can they see the title across the room? You know, is it big enough? Is it, is it contrasted enough? I mean, there's, there's a science to all of this. The color orange, not good. Uh, we, uh, the, there are color experts that so you don't want people to hang out near the waterfront, paint the wall orange. So I've seen book covers that are orange and they just don't do well. Um, so you need to learn these things because you can take a really good product and, and if you don't market it and package it correctly, and then if you don't sell it, I had, one of my kids wrote a book called Long Past Stopping. He, I got divorced, uh, from my First wife after five years, and she got the kids. And the reason I divorced her was, you know, she was tough to live with. And uh, she raised them. And one of my sons got into drugs and wrote a book called Long Past Stopping. And um, it's a great book, really a good read. And he was just too shy and unwilling to go out and promote it. So it, it, it maybe sold fifteen thousand copies, but it's a book that could have sold half a million copies if you had been willing to go do that. She's so got to be willing to do the work.
0: Jack, thank you so much for for all this, all your time, your stories, extraordinary references and wisdom. I know this is going to take people into actually taking action on their dreams and fulfilling their soul's purpose. This this was extraordinary. You're welcome. My pleasure, Adam. Podcast listeners, find all the show notes, all references and resources mentioned in this episode, plus any other episode I've ever recorded by going to adamstidik.com and clicking the podcast tab. Thanks for tuning in, and if you loved the episode, please share with somebody.